And that was sort of the moment where I really dug in to say, what is it that I need right now to be happy? What would a happier life look like? And really beginning to ask yourself those questions and think about what do I have in my life that's making me happy? What do I have in my life that's detracting from my happiness or taking my energy in a non-productive way? And then how do I unwind that? How do I get out of it? How do I back it out of my life? What you're describing is actually a nervous system reaction to change, right? It's this mm. idea that it's not I'm happy here, I'm safe here, right? Yes. I know what I need to do to, to be quote unquote successful, and so it's safe. On average, when we move outside the known to the unknown, our nervous system perceives that we will be unsafe. And what yep. do you think it does? It tells us, please don't go there, right? Absolutely. And so we spend a lot, of, or I spend time with my clients sort of identifying and distinguishing between a nervous system reaction to change versus unhappiness. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. Today is episode 68, and the title is The Happiness Recipe, Strategies for Enhancing Your Leadership Impact with More Happiness. Our special guest today is Becky Morrison, and she is here today to share with us her ideas, her shifts, and some tools to achieve more happiness while continuing your achievement journey. She's gonna talk about the importance of setting boundaries. I love this, she talks about how important it is to subtract things from our lives in order to enhance our performance and our happiness. She's gonna talk about how it's important to not confuse our confidence comfort zones with happiness and to not confuse safety with happiness. She's also going to talk about what she calls the three key happiness gaps, the authenticity gap, the physical energy gap, and the emotional energy gap. You're in for a treat on some different ways to look at not only being happier, but creating a life of happiness while you continue your pursuit of impact. Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. Craig and I have another fascinating guest today. Becky Morrison is coming to us from Virginia, the D.C. area. Uh, she's a coach, consultant, connector. And I love when people include that word in their bio, connector, because Craig and I are both connectors. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people are really intentional or see themselves as connectors. So I know that's a great plus for Becky already. And she works with people to help them accelerate leadership, improve communication, hone their people time and project management skills, which is an interesting combo, isn't it? Because typically people are strong in one and weak in the other. And I love this, shows people how to live an easier and happier life. Hmm. Now she's had a fascinating background, we'll hear more. She's a recovering lawyer. Not, she's not sure if she's recovered or recovering yet, but she and I have been in that same boat. But she's worked in law firms, she's run she ran an entrepreneurial investment firm. So she's worked in big companies, small companies, and she's a mom and a business owner and a wife. 
So she brings the, spool, the full spectrum of life experience to us. So welcome, Becky. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate you, you having me here, guys. Yeah. So Becky, give us a little more of the Becky Morrison story. I mean, you've sort of hit on the, the highest points, Jeff. I'm a, an, ex, an executive coach, um, a consultant, a connector, and an author. Um, and I got to this place after sort of a 20-year winding road through my career that was really full of sort of two themes. One, a healthy dash of what other people thought I should do. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then some left turns that were really driven by how can I architect the life that I want to live. And so, um, you know, I'll start at kind of the beginning. I, I spent a few years in corporate, then I went to law school. And then, as you said, I, I was a practicing attorney. I was a litigator at a large national law firm. And at that point, I found myself with a two-year-old and a husband who had a really busy, demanding career in counterterrorism. Hmm. And probably that was the, the point in my life where I kind of finally asked myself what it was that I needed from my career to be happy rather than what's the next logical step, right? Like I went to college. What do I do now? I get a job. Well, the job was great. What do I do now? I go to grad school. Oh, I go to law school. What do I do now? I'd be a lawyer. And so finally I found myself at this moment of like, what do I want to do? And so that's really where I started this series of career transitions that included some pay cuts and some left turns hmm. and really to start building the kind of career and life that I wanted. Um, I spent time on the admin side of law firms. As you said, I worked in entrepreneurial finance. And then when I got effectively, although not officially laid off from that job, I found myself again, sort of wrestling with this question of what do I want to do versus what can I do or what should I do? Hmm. And with the help of a coach, I landed on coaching. And so um, now I spend a lot of my time, although I do consulting work, I wrote a book. And like you said, I'm a connector. I spend a lot of my time working with people one-on-one -on -one, um, to really help them uncover their authentic leadership style and to help them live happier, easier, and what I call priority-aligned lives. Hmm, great. Now, when you say you take a left turn, is that because a left turn, you have to wait for something else before you can turn left because you got to wait for the stoplight, whereas a right turn, you know, you can kind of ease in there. 100%. I feel like a left <laughs> turn, I mean, that's part of it, right? Like, I feel like a left turn just takes more thought. It doesn't gotcha. kind of easily flow. It's not something that you can just kind of roll through. To your point, you have to wait, you have to look, you have to assess, and then you have to make a deliberate decision to turn left versus just sort of following the curve around to the right. So yeah. Well, I was fine. also noting that left turn thing. And I said, have you just been going in circles? <laughs> I mean, if it's all left turns, so. you fair just enough. keep coming back. Yeah, no, fair enough. I don't think so. Maybe a spiral, maybe a spiral to find the true center. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Awesome. There you go. So it's, it's more of the, um, so the Nautilus shell? Yeah, 100%. Sort of circling around <laughs> what it is that matters to me, circling around what it is that I want to do. Yeah, oh, I think actually. I love that, that analogy. That's actually probably pretty accurate. Huh, and then you yeah, finally end up in the, in the right spot. In so the, a in lot the of core. decisions. Interesting. So that's, wow, I love that. And who are the types of people that you serve in your coaching practice? So I tend to work with what I will call um, emerging leaders, but really what I mean by that is people who've reached a new level of leadership in their career, mm -hmm. and they are at a moment where they say, wow, it's time to bring in some more help so that I can figure out, assess my skills, my blind spots, and how I really want to show up in this new level of leadership. Gotcha. I describe it sometimes as uh, C-suite or C-suite bound, so pretty elevated emerging leaders, but still, okay. um, that's one big category that I work with. And then I do a lot of work, too, with um, entrepreneurs who mm -hmm. need some help getting clear on 
their priorities and getting structured and productive, which is like, I don't know, 88% of entrepreneurs, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but a lot of them, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I do a lot of work in that space too. So that's sort of the two, the two big areas that I'm coaching in right now. Gotcha. You know, Becky, I find it fascinating listening to you because your journey was so similar to mine around that the decision process that was very narrowly focused. It was all about what's next. And it wasn't about what's now and who I, none of that. And I, for me, I mean, I laid out my career at age 15 or 16, which is kind of freaky, that I was going to work at a corporate law firm and become a partner. And I did all that. And it wasn't until I got there and got to that first destination, I finally said, well, what's next? But is this what I want even want? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I ended up starting my own law firm, which was what I thought was the path. It was different. But it was very, I love the perspective of how it's easy to get trapped in what's next, what's next versus asking the question, who am I now? Mm-hmm. What do I want? That's I mean, we live in a what's next world, right? Exactly. And I think that's, and it's hard to get out of that because it's, it's in, I think it's culturized into us. Mm-hmm. And like you said, when people are telling us what we should do, a lot of times it's that question. They do it without knowing it. So what's next? What's next? And they're really telling us, don't worry about, anything except what's next. So you're never in the moment. You're never having the experience. And I think as you'll share more later, you don't have the, the happiness and joy in your life because all you're doing is what nexting yourself. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Becky, you said you're, you're in the process of writing a book that's going mm-hmm. to be coming out. What's the name of that book? So that book is called The Happiness Recipe, A Powerful Guide for Living What Matters. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm glad we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about that. So as you're looking at the happiness and some of the left turns that you've taken and where you are now, what, what were some of the recipes that, that you've looked at for happiness? Well, I mean, I, I think my journey, let me be really clear. My journey to happiness was not a fast one. <laughs> um, I got in my own way a lot. Um, but I, I think it started for me, like I said, when I had this young daughter and a husband with an intense career, and I myself was litigating cases. And um, I, I talk about this, what I call my bathtub moment. So let me explain. I was sitting <laughs> in the bathroom with my two-year-old in the tub. Um, I had planned to work late that night, but something had blown up somewhere in the world. And so I was at home instead of at work because my husband was at work. And that was, we had decided as between us that his mis- mission was more important than mine. And so n- no, uh, no ill feelings there, but mm-hmm. I'm sitting on the floor of the bathroom And I've got the cordless phone clipped to the back of my pants. And I'm on a call where I'm interviewing an expert to prep for a deposition. I'm taking notes and I'm trying to bathe a two-year-old. Wow. (laughs) And I can still like distinctly, I can feel the tile. I can picture the bathroom and had this moment where I was like this. Um, First, my first thought honestly was, whoa, this is awesome. I'm doing it all. Like I'm the epitome (laughs) of the, you know, working lawyer mom. And then I very quickly in succession thought this is not sustainable. I, this is not making me happy. I might feel like, you know, I can brag that I took the expert call and took care of my kid, but I'm not having any fun. Mm. I'm not able to enjoy either thing. Um, and I actually really liked the litigation part of litigating. So to not enjoy that part stunk. Um, and that was sort of the moment where I really dug in to say, what is it that I need right now to be happy? What would a happier life look like? And really beginning to ask yourself those questions and think about, what do I have in my life that's making me happy? What do I have in my life that's detracting from my happiness or taking my energy in a non-productive way? 
And then how do I unwind that? How do I get out of it? Hmm. How do I back it out of my life? So, yeah. Wow. So, so Becky, I, there's a question that I have to ask you, uh, and it may be out of order, but I just have to. You have created something or involved in something called the Butterfly Society. <laughs> and butterflies are very special to me. Okay. So I'm really curious what that is about. So that is still um, emerging, uh, but my, my <laughs> so <to> ironically, <laughs> um, but my vision for that is that it, that's the, the connector piece. My vision for that is that mm. it will be a, a place for people who want to engage in transforming their lives into a happier right now mm. um, to gather, connect, get resourced, get, get trainings, get, I don't know exactly what it will look like, but it's an idea that I came up with about a year ago that I've sort of just been incubating and letting evolve as my, my business evolves. So yeah, butterflies are um, just a symbol that's been around for me for the past couple of years as I've gone through this change from like more traditional job to having my own business. Um, and they're, they have, you know, they've just felt, I felt really connected to that symbolism. And so that's where that came from. Well, butterflies are special indeed. They are very special and, and a great metaphor. So Becky, I'm I wanted to hear more about that that moment, that bathroom or bathtub moment. There's a lot in that, mm -hmm. and I and I resonate with it because my moment wasn't so. Yours was kind of cool. My moment <laughs> happened sitting at a computer in my office at two in the morning, when I was getting really excited about the fact that I was working on a brief, and I was cranking out great work, and I was like, "Wow, this is awesome!" It's two in the morning and I'm writing great stuff, man, I'm really good. And then it hit me, it was two in the morning <laughs> and everybody at my office was gone. I'm sure my opponent was at home and had dinner with their family, was mm. enjoying, and was probably in bed asleep. And I thought, why is this the win? Mm -hmm. Something's wrong, this is not the win. And I realized oh, it really went back a long way for me, a lot of work ethic I had learned, because I told people, you will never outwork me. Mm. And when I had my own firm, I, you know, I told other lawyers, hey, you can bring it on, big firm, you, you won't outwork me. So I thought success and being the best meant working harder than everybody else. And, mm -hmm. and I had lost my life in that story without ever real, realizing it until that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. I really appreciate you sharing that because that's a big one. There's this idea that we have that the way that we get happier and get more is always to add, always to do more, always, uh -huh. always right. you know, it's, it's never about really getting focused, right? It's about just throwing more at the problem, more. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to, you know, and, and that's a real thing that I think impacts a lot of people. And there is something about, um, I mean, I'm going to say this because I have a a dad who's a Lutheran pastor, but there's something about that Protestant work ethic. That's what it reminds me of. He used to talk about that a lot. And um, that sort of is counterproductive to being happy. Hmm. Yeah. I see so many people that, that are working themselves thin, but I also see a lot of people. I know quite a few people who have realized, you know, if I can bring on my team and have, you know, higher people who are excellent at what they do and who enjoy what they do that I don't want to do, then I can start having a life that I want, you know, and friends that have multiple companies that they don't have to spend that much time in there because they have a good management team. Yeah. And so there, there are ways for us to get creative about how we can live the life that we want.
A hundred percent. Subtracting, especially in the context of somebody who is at a high level of leadership or owns their own company, subtracting doesn't mean not altogether abandoning, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? It just means finding a different way to do it that doesn't require as much of your your energy. And that can be outsourcing, that can be delegating, that can be changing the timing. I mean, there's all sorts of things, I think, and that's where coaching comes in to figure out how is it that I want to focus my energy, right? Because that's really what it comes down to. It's putting more of your energy, or I say energy, but really I mean capacity. So time, energy, and resources towards what matters to you and not kind of trying to spread it all over the place and hope for the best, you know? It's a, it's a big mindset shift though. I mean, it's like in, in my other business, I'm, I'm growing and adding staff at this point and it's, you know, for the longest time I've been doing everything solo. And so now I'm, I'm having to, okay, let's get back to this place where I actually have a team that, that I can lead and step back from doing everything and do, do the things that I do best, which I love working with my clients directly. Yep. Yep. And you have to kind of, sometimes, I mean, if you've been in the trenches for a while, you have to remind yourself of what it is that you love best, right? (laughs) Right. And you have to remind yourself, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this, but you have to remind yourself that um, other people can do it maybe differently, but just as well as you can. Because yes. I see a lot of people fall into that trap too, right? It's like, well, but I've been doing it this way now for X amount of time. And yeah, I want to hand it off to somebody, but I want them to do it the way that I was doing it without sort of the recognition that, hey, what matters is that it gets done. We get the result. Yeah. Um, and so letting, letting go of that control a little bit, even if it's not your normal tendency, when you've been in the trenches, it can be hard to do. Yeah. Well, Becky, speak, you're talking a lot about mindsets. We all are. Another mindset that's coming up for me is when people shift into a new role, whether it's they've, they've advanced to that role or they're the business leader who says, you know what, I need to be doing this and not that. You mentioned being in the trenches, but can you speak to what is, drives people to want to stay in the trenches? Because there's one voice that says, I, want to, I need and want to get out of the trenches, but at the same time, it's kind of like, I'm out of the trenches, except they've got one foot still in the trench. They just won't let go of that trench. So what do you find that is in the way for them fully getting out of the trenches? I mean, so I see a couple different things. And I want to start at the beginning and say, I think you really have to do some assessment of whether you want to, you actually want to be in the trenches. Sometimes we hold on to being in the trenches because being in the trenches is actually what makes us happy. And so that's cool. If that's where you want to spend your time, but but you need to be honest about that and then honest about what that means from a leadership business perspective. So maybe you're going to spend time in the trenches, but you need to bring in some support on the more strategic visioning side. I've seen, I've seen entrepreneurs mm-hmm. do that and it's appropriate yeah. to do. So first is really being honest about why you want to be in the trenches. What is that pull? Let's talk about it. Let's define it. And sometimes it comes down to that is actually where your happiness comes from. Mm. But a lot of the time, I really do think it comes down to um, control, uh, especially yeah. in the entrepreneurial context or in the sort of like top of the pyramid context, right? You're a, you have so much accountability and it's very hard as humans to let go of control over things that we are accountable for. And that tension is very real, even if you're not a, you know, quote unquote control freak, even if control hasn't been an issue for you, you know, an identified issue for you, it's still really hard to say, yeah, I'll be accountable for the result here, but I'm going to let go of control of the how. Hmm. That's a big deal for people to make that leap. And, um, and the way that I do it with my 
clients is really to work with them on a couple of things. First is a, a decision checklist to help them in the moment, sit down quickly and evaluate, is this something that I should be doing based on the, the overall construct that we've decided that I want to focus on? And then the second is just continuing to check in with them on why. why what, what is driving your desire to be involved in that? Why did you decide to show up and get, um, you know, jump in in the middle of that project? Mm. And what impact is that having on your ability to do other things? What impact is that having on your yeah. capacity? What impact is that having on the people on the team who you swooped in and took stuff from? Because yes, <laughs> there's an impact there. And, and so how do you then, then is that an impact that you're comfortable with? And so really walking them through that decision process and practice, it's just a matter of practicing that muscle of letting go of seeding uh, control, even though you have accountability. Mm-hmm. Becky, I want to uh, dig deeper on one of the things you just said. You talked about this idea of someone's the figuring out, being honest and saying, is this what really makes me happy? But what I also see is people think it makes them happy, but what it really is, is I'll call it competence comfort zone. 100%. That's where they are rock stars. And as long as they're doing that, they will look and appear like they're doing a great job. But stepping out of that is all the stuff they're not, maybe their muscles aren't as strong, it's the new area, it's uncomfortable. So they confuse competence, comfort with happiness. Yeah. Isn't that where micromanagement comes in? Because, you know, if they're, they're familiar with that prior job and now when they get promoted to leading that job, they're still comfortable with what they were doing and maybe not as comfortable with the current role. And so they get in and micromanage. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, it, you've hit on something huge there. And I do actually end up doing a lot of work with my clients. I, I know just enough about the nervous system and safety to be dangerous, but helpful. Um, and so I end up doing, I mean, because what you're describing is actually a nervous system reaction to change, right? It's this mm. idea that I am, I, it's, it's not I'm happy here, I'm safe here, right? Yes, right. I'm safe here. I know, I know what I need to do to, to be quote unquote successful. And so it's safe. And anytime we move outside the known into the unknown, our, I shouldn't say anytime, but like on average, when we move outside the known to the unknown, our nervous system perceives that we will be unsafe. And what yep. do you think it does? It tells us, please don't go there. Right. Absolutely. And so we spend a lot of, or I spend time with my clients sort of identifying and distinguishing between a nervous system reaction to change versus unhappiness. Mm. So lack of safety is not bad. Lack of base level, like gut level nervous system safety is just an evolutionary reaction. So let's identify it. Let's talk about where it lives in your body. Let's talk about what triggers it. And then let's think about do you, how much weight do you want to give that reaction and how do you want to treat it? And so there's absolutely something there in that, in, in that, in figuring out, oh, yeah, no, I like doing this new stuff. It feels weird and it feels unsafe, but that does not mean it's bad and it does not mean it's making me unhappy. Yeah. So, Becky, I'm curious about that. I, I love what you said about asking questions like what's the trigger and things like that. Uh, how often are you digging in deeper with your clients to find out what the real source of the lack of safety is? And what I mean by that is I had a client this week we were going through this exact process. It was about a specific pro- thing he was stepping into. And I asked the question I almost always do is, so what are you afraid of? And he said, that's easy. I'm afraid of not being in control. And I said, nope, that's not it. Because not being in control is an event. 
but there's something that might happen if you're not in control. <laughs> and that and it was it got to the safety said, oh, that's because if I'm not in control, then my sense is I'm vulnerable and I might be judged. And I said, well, that's not it either because you might be judged as brilliant. And he said, oh, that's true. Judgment's not bad. It said, they got to, they're going to think that I'm incompetent. So that was the fear was about his fear of being perceived as not competent and having it together, which led him to want to be in control, which led him to not letting go of things. But it was, mm-hmm. it was two or three steps in for him to find it. So how often do you find that as well with your clients that it's, they got to go to a couple levels to find out what's really makes them feel unsafe? You definitely almost always have to go more than one level, right? What people think they're feeling is often not what's really under that feeling. The second thought I'll add is that over the last two years, I have concluded in my very unscientific study of people that 99.5% of us are walking around feeling like in some way we aren't good enough. And that is almost always what is under that fear. Hmm. Almost always. Does this come back to the... Um, oh, what's, what's the syndrome? Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. syndrome. Yeah, it's definitely related. I mean, that's a big part of it, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, what I do as a coach though, so let me, I want to add this one other thought because I do dig deeper, right? Mm -hmm. But somebody described the difference between coaching and therapy to me as coaching is architecture. Therapy is archeology. (laughs) right which i actually thought was a reasonable description but the reality is sometimes when you're building a building when you're being an architect you also need to dig and so you dig to a point but i'm not getting deep into you know what happened when you were in third grade that made control feel necessary or made judgment feel unsafe because probably the not good enough Um, feeling that we all have goes back to something that likely happened to us in our childhood. I'm not going to guarantee that, but that's probably where it comes from. Um, But that's more than I'm equipped to handle. And so where necessary, I'll suggest that people get additional support, but we Mm -hmm. do talk about it. We do talk about that depth of feeling and get to that place of like, what's really under that fear that you're experiencing? What is that Mm -hmm. really about? What are you really afraid of? And what do we need to do with that fear to move forward? As Becky, one thing you have not used this word yet, but I suspect it's in here. You've mentioned this idea of figuring out what's important to you and focusing on that, but you've sort of, you've done some hand gestures and putting other things over here. And every time you do that, the word that comes to mind for me is boundaries. And the idea of saying no, because a lot of times it's, I don't know what to say yes to but I've got to be clear what I'm saying no to and to be willing to say that. Can you speak to the role of boundaries in this, including the ways that boundary setting and holding is impacted by those worthiness questions? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. So <laughs> you're 100% right that I've been doing this hand gesture. And, and I think of it really the biggest boundary we can set is what, will, what am I willing to say no to, Right. And what do I believe that I can say no to? And um, that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling of not good enough or that imposter syndrome absolutely comes into play when we say no. People are often afraid to say no when given an opportunity, even if that opportunity doesn't actually align with what they want because they're afraid it won't come around again. (laughs) They're afraid Mm. 
if they don't jump on it now, it's going to become obvious they weren't qualified or they didn't deserve it and therefore it won't come back. And so it's this like deep lack mentality tied to inadequacy that makes it hard for us to say no. Um, there's other reasons though why people struggle to say no. Um, a lot of them are mindset based and a lot of them come down to uh, are we willing to truly claim what matters to us in a very public way by saying no to something that we don't think is important to our happiness? That's a big thing. That's a big boundary to set. And it's very, I mean, it's not, you may be just saying no to one person, but it's still public, right? You're not just saying internally, this isn't, you know, this is my priority. This is what's important to me. Now you're going out and saying your thing that you want me to do, I'm going to say no to it because it's not important to me. And that feels very heavy for a lot of people. Hmm. I think it's really important. I think a lot of people, I've heard this over and over again, where people say, oh, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I don't believe that at all. I see that there are constantly opportunities out there for us. And it's just a matter of opening our minds to what is available to us. So many people get so narrowly focused. It's like I've heard it said, you know, we have this six inch radar, but we have a football field size of things that are coming at us opportunities that are there, but we have this little tiny window of what we allow ourselves to see. That's 100% true. And it's so interesting because in my work with clients, I, I, that is one of the first, um, I'll call it speed bumps that we run into, right? Is I ask people to engage in this sort of wide ranging consideration of, their, of possibility. Yeah. And it's very hard to get people out of their box. <laughs> yes. And look, no judgment, right? I mean, I, I feel it. When I, when I sure. hit that bathtub moment, I didn't become a coach, I went and worked for a law firm on the admin side, right? So I was still <laughs> in my box of, okay, what's the, yeah. what's the next closest adjacent thing that I could do that might be closer to what mm. it is that I, that I want that matters yeah. to me, that's meaningful to me. And so really getting people to take those blinders off and say, look, I get it. We might not go, like the time to be a professional athlete may have passed, but let's talk about all of the things that are on your dreamscape like right. the biggest vision you can possibly have. And that without talking about whether it's possible in your mind, without talking about whether you believe it, whether you can see it, whether you can grab onto it, whether you can do it, whether your wife will care, whether your kids will think it's weird. I don't care. Let's just talk about it. And then we can talk about what it is that's appealing about that. You know, is, is, did you want to be a baseball player because you love the game of baseball? Or did you want to be a baseball player because you thought you'd be famous and make a lot of money? Like, what is it that drove you to find that interesting? And it's different for different people, right? Yeah. Like my husband, um, I told you worked in counterterrorism. Now he's a basketball coach full time, but mm. he does it because he loves the game. It's not about, I mean, he coaches in high school. He's not, not, you know, making an NBA coach salary. It's, it's about truly loving kids and loving the game. And so what is it that pulls you to that thing and makes you want to want to do it? So I have to say, Becky, when you just said that, what went through my head is I'd love to see the coaching style of the guy that used to run counterterrorism. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I will tell you, I will say this, what he brings to coaching, two things. First of all, he's a natural born mentor and he always has been. And that was one of the biggest things that he did even in his intelligence career was guide other analysts. Um, but what he brings to the table now as a coach is an immense um, dose of perspective, mm. right? I mean, it matters whether you win or lose, but it's not life or death. Right. You know, and so really allowing people to like 
embrace the game for what it is. And I mean, he, he has, yeah, I could go on. He's doing some really cool stuff. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. And, and this question is for both of you, because both of you have been on the attorney side and, you know, as, as litigators, as, as people who are asking questions and how much of that really comes back to, in, to influence your coaching style and your ability to get at the root of issues? You, you want to go first? first? I don't I'll care. go first. Okay, you can go I first. I will tell you that I, I would say, honestly, it's pretty limited hmm. okay. um, because people will say, I'm known for being a great questioner. And people yep. say, that's because you're a lawyer. I said, wait a minute. But lawyers don't ask questions to understand. They ask questions to get something they want. Mm. It's really a, it's a process designed to get your client information or get information from someone else to be used. What I would say is one of the best skills I got from that was listening mm. and listening intuitively because when you're talking to even your own clients, you need to listen beyond the words and you mm. need to hear what's not being said and you need to look for that thread to pull. And I do the same thing in coaching. So that's the biggest thing that comes to mind that uh, for me around what I took from that mm. process. So I, I would agree and, and slightly disagree. I mean, I, I think maybe because what I did as an attorney was a little different, but um, I do think that there is some amount of understanding like even in deposition training as a young associate, right? It was you ask the question until the door is closed. And so I do definitely feel like that's a skill that I bring to coaching, right? It's like, what else? What else? What else? Being willing to sort of like go all the way to the closed door. Mm. Um, but I'll tell you the thing that I think that I find that I use the most, and, and I'm also, this is going to sound sort of left field and it is, but um, I'm also in the process of getting my LLM in tax right now. <laughs> um, and, and so back in the land of law school and taking law school exams. And the, the thing that, that I think, and this is sort of what you said, Jeff, but the idea of issue spotting, I think being really good at looking at a fact pattern and figuring out where the important strings are, uh, it's a different kind of issue that you're spotting. It's more, for me, it's more of a heart, heart and meaning kind of issue, mm. but it's the same skill, right? It's how do I take these little strings and then also connect the dots or, or, or identify the patterns. And I feel like that's a skill that I definitely, I didn't get it from law school, but I honed it in law school. Hmm. And I feel like I use it a lot in my coaching. It's interesting to me that both of you came from the, uh, from the law side and you talk about both of you deal with heart. And so it's, it's interesting to don't typically think of attorneys as being heart-centered people, but maybe that's the recovering side. I mean, I think it's the part of me that I, that I asked to be quiet for a long time, to be honest. Mm. Um, and it's the part of me that even in sort of stepping into this coaching role was like, how do I explain, you know, I sort of bill myself sometimes as like a happiness coach. How do I explain that I'm out here? I'm a recovering attorney or recovered. We haven't decided. Um, and I'm out here, like, and I'm a happiness coach. Like, that does not seem congruent, even to <laughs> me sometimes, but it's also, like, what I know to be true for me. So, um, yeah, that's what I'll say. Rebecca, you talked about something a moment ago I want to go a little deeper on. You talked about this idea of the box, and Craig talked about the box, and people love to talk about the box, getting out of the box. And Craig and I, I think, have similar views on it, 
with different words that, you know, the box is, I, I almost wish we would stop talking about the box because, you know, to me, once you're out of the box, even if you are out of the box, you're in a new box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a given. And I, and Craig, you've said something about it's written on the outside, not the inside. And what but, box we're in. Yeah. What box mm-hmm. you're in. But the question is this, how often do your clients struggle when you're trying to expand their perception, but the box has been created by the message they hear from everyone around them, often including their partners. Like they'll say, well, you're already, you know, being super creative. You're already out of the box. And they go, I'm already out. You know, I'm doing all this stuff. And part of that's the box. You're doing so much. You're so amazing because you're doing 37 things. So I go, oh man, I must be different than everybody else. I'm out of the box. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the way that I think about it, I actually don't fight the box. I think, I think what matters to me is, are you, can, are you, are you happy in the box that you're in? And if you're not happy in the box that you're in, then let's talk about getting out of that box, right? And, and maybe we need to make the box bigger to do that. Maybe we need to change the shape of the box. Maybe it's an altogether different box. But I think when a client comes to me and says things like you're saying, like, oh, well, people tell me I'm already great. Well, that's nice. But how do you feel? (laughs) Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartevera. Cartevera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartevera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartevera.com. Welcome back. Becky, one of the things you've talked about a number of times is happiness. And your new book coming out in the spring is about a happiness recipe. You've also said that people that you work with sometimes struggle to know the difference between happy and something like safety or comfort. So how do you help them understand which is which and what is happiness? So the way I would describe it is you've got kind of a Venn diagram and in in one circle, you've got happiness and one circle, you've got comfort. And there is some overlap, right? Like things that make us comfortable, things that are safe for us also may make us happy. And so really helping people kind of make a list of what it is that lights them up, what it is that gives them energy, um, even if it takes some energy to do it what it is that makes them feel joyful, and then identifying where safety falls with those things too. You know, which side of the Venn diagram? Are they in the intersect? Are they just on the happy side? And then figuring out how they want to balance those things in their life. I mean, the reality is if you're taking too many, I'm going to say risks, but I mean that in the loosest sense, too many nervous system risks at once, that's going to be overwhelming. So if it really would light you up to I'm going to use a silly example to jump out of an airplane every day. You probably don't want oh, to jump fun. out of yeah and yeah, for sure fun. But you probably don't want to jump out of an airplane every day and also quit your job and also, you know what I mean, you don't want to do all of the things at once that are going to send your nervous system haywire. You want to ease yourself into those happy making things that are outside your comfort zone. Um and for some people, um jumping out of a plane is outside their comfort zone, but in a really positive way, right? Like it amps up their adrenaline, their adrenaline junkies that feels good. For some people, it's outside their comfort zone in a terrifying but necessary way, right? And still would make them happy because they could say they jumped out of an airplane. So just evaluating 
for you individually, how, how do you process comfort and happiness and how can we ease you towards things that are outside your comfort zone, but that also might bring you more happiness? Well, probably yeah. it also depends on the context of the airplane because uh, one of my dear friends is a former special forces and he shared with me that some of their training was they jumped out of a plane, but without a chute and they would, <laughs> they would throw the parachute out of the plane and they would say, go get it. Little wow. Less, little, little less fun That's for most stressful. people. So people that say, I want to jump out of a plane well, with a parachute or without, you know, yeah. or without. there's different levels of uh, leaping. And, yes. and late, life is a lot about leaping. Yes. Well, so I'm a, I'm a pilot. And the first time I went skydiving, it was in a plane that was held together with Bondo and duct tape. So I felt more comfortable jumping out than landing in it. There you go. Exactly. So it's, I mean, a lot of it is a mat. And that's, that, that is all, you know, a, a, a cute analogy, but it's, it's very real, right? It's all a matter yeah. of perspective. It's all a matter of context, right? And so, you know, for some people, it might feel really, you know, you talked, Craig, about the once in a lifetime opportunity or the, the opportunity that people describe as once in a lifetime. It might feel yes. super scary and uncomfortable to say no to that, but right. it might be what you need to do for your happiness. And so how do we get you to a place where you can take that leap? Um, mm. Well, Becky, you, your book is called, is it hap the recipe for the happiness? happiness? The happiness recipe. So the happiness recipe. Uh, what parts of the recipe have we not talked about? Because I want to make sure we share a little more about at least some level that people uh, about this recipe and what they might find more of in your book. So I think we've talked broad strokes about a lot of it. The one piece I'll add is, so I find that there are three things that get in the way of people's happiness. Three, I call them happiness gaps. And so the first one is the authenticity gap. And so it's this idea that we're not honest with ourselves or with others about what it is that we truly need to be happy or what matters most to us. And then I talk about the physical energy gap. And we've talked about this today. It's about boundary setting. It's about subtracting. It's about spending more of your capacity, your time, your energy resources on what matters to you and less of the rest. Um, and then the middle gap is actually, um, I call it the emotional energy gap. And so we live in a very action-centered culture where we decide what we want and then, and then we go and get it. And we don't often stop to figure out, do we have the feelings and beliefs, the framework, the foundation to support lasting change if the thing we yes. want is change? And so that's kind of the structure of the book. And so one, one I want to talk about two things. One is um, in the authenticity gap, I launched by talking about seasons. And I think this is relevant <clears throat> always, but particularly now, that um, my focus is really about being happier today. And that means being clear on what today has in store for you. And so I'll take the example of, um, you know, we're in the midst of, of COVID right now. That I think that's a season that was sort of thrust upon us. We didn't choose it, but here we are. And there's limitations to what we can do. And so how do you acknowledge the reality of your season and let that inform how you go about doing more of what matters to you? And so um, like, as an example, if I'm somebody who works a nine to five job to fund my worldwide travel adventures, this hasn't been an awesome season for my happiness, right? Because I can't go all over the globe like I had planned. And so how do you figure out what you can do, but that will still scratch the itch, will still bring you some happiness? Is it about new people? Is it about new experiences? Is it about learning something? Is it about seeing something you've never seen before? Maybe you can decamp to a location instead of traveling around the globe and really just assessing what you can do, again, given the confines of your current season 
um, to bring the most happiness. So that's, that's, I think, something that we hadn't talked about that I'll throw out there. Well, one other thing I want to ask you about, and I, to see where this all fits, Becky, is so many people, including me, <clears throat> spend their lives, and I did for a long time, pursuing happiness. <laughs> And it's because happiness was about something I was going to achieve. Happiness was something I was going to accomplish, something I was going to get. Or even as you said, you know, going on those travels, you know, if I can't travel, then I can't be happy because I've attached happiness to stuff outside myself. Can you speak to how that plays out in the work you do and how you shift those mindsets? Yeah, I mean, look, if I could make a T-shirt, it would probably say happiness now right? It's about how do you figure out in the place where you are today, what it is that could drive a happier right now? What do you need more of today? What do you need less of today? And I literally often will do this for myself, for my family and for my clients on like a weekly, daily basis, if that's what we need to do to figure out, okay, what can I do today that will make me, when I go to bed, think, ah, that was a good day. I'm happy today. Um, or, or another way I'll frame it sometimes is you start your day by saying, how do I want to feel tonight? And then architect the day around that. Um, but really thinking about how to set it up <clears throat> so that you're not striving for something. Happiness isn't a reward. It's a state of being. Um, so true. And, and that's really got to be the focus. Wow. Great. And I, I think this is, is, seems like this is a tricky one, Becky, because I fully follow you. I'm with you completely. You keep saying the word now, and for me, that's about living in the present. And when I'm in the present, I experience great joy just by being in the present. But there's phrases we use that I think get confusing, like, um, oh, God, there's a, a phrase that just hit me about joy. Um, you know, we'll say to someone, and you might say to your clients, what is it that gives you joy? Well, that statement alone tells me it's a setup in that mindset in that what gives me joy is, well, when I do this or when I have this. So it's, it can feels like a trap, like our language is trapping us in this story that happiness and joy is somewhere down the road. It doesn't just exist as a state of being. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it's so, I mean, that just shows you how deeply it has I was going to say, there's a word I'm looking for, but I can't come up with it. And the only one that I'm hearing is infected, right? Like how deeply that mindset has infected our world, this idea that we have to somehow earn or get or wait um, for happiness, right? And um, I'm not sure I have a good answer for how to solve that um, other than I'm, I'm talk about it, right? Other than to own it, other than to say, well, what are we really doing here with this activity? And and how can you feel happier now? I mean, I, I have used a bunch of different prompts with people, but um, I, like, I tend to like for this kind of work, and this is a small shift, instead of asking a question, like sort of more of a, a sentence completion. And that starts to, you know, I feel joyful when, and then answer that question. If I feel joyful when I go on trips or I'm on vacation, well, we got to find a way to bring, back that up and bring it to to more of a daily life, right? Um, and then we can unpack, well, what is it about trips or vacation that is joyful for you? Is it the lack of 
you know, I don't have to be on my cell phone every moment. I'm not in the office. I'm with my family. Well, maybe it's those things, in fact, that are bringing you joy, not the being in Colorado or, you know, Europe or wherever it is that you were. Well, Becky, this has been really tremendous. And I, I love that it's not just, you know, some people say it's all about happiness, la, la, la. But this is about practical ways to help people see their lives differently, their choices differently, and to give them a path to have to live in happiness, notwithstanding their journey. So they actually enjoy the journey, not just the folks on the destination. So it's very wide ranging. I'm very grateful for it. One question I always like to ask people at the end is this. Craig and I have asked you a number of questions. You've shared a lot of ideas. Is there a question that we haven't asked that it's important for you to answer so that people can leave with what they need to make some of these shifts in their life? So I'm not going to frame it in terms of a question, but I had a thought as you were giving that summary, and it's the following. Living a happier life doesn't mean feeling good all the time. Having joy means being able to live through, feel through, work through all of the feelings. Hmm. And I think people get tripped up on this idea that, like you said, happiness, la, la, la. But no, happiness is not a constant state, right? It's about happier and identifying happiness when it happens, but also having the tools and the equipment and the ability to work through the hard stuff because life throws hard stuff our way sometimes. And how do we manage it? Um, and how do we work through it? And how do we do it in a way that still preserves our happiness? Wow. So, so good. I love this, Becky. So Becky, as we always do at the end, uh, is there anything in particular you want to promote? I know you've mentioned the book is that or something else. Well, so what I'd like to do, if it makes sense, is just direct people to my website. I have a special page for podcast listeners. And so my website is um, grantleycoaching.com. And if you go to grantleycoaching.com backslash podcasts, you can get on the um, list to know about when the book comes out. You can learn a little bit more about the coaching I do, and you can get free access to a very small mini course that I have that introduces some of the concepts in my book called Unlocking Happiness. So. Uh, if you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Instagram at the.butterfly.society. Oh, the butterfly keeps coming back. It does. <laughs> yeah, the butterfly keeps coming back. So one of the other things we wrap up with, Becky, is a question. And you, you gave me the pleasure because you threw some ideas out, but you said you'll handle any of them. So I, li I loved getting to choose. <laughs> now, now I'm a little scared. <laughs> So I'm feeling movie juice today. Okay. Movie juice. And so think about movies, television, something in the entertainment world, a movie, a show, a scene, maybe even a quote or a character that speaks to you about leadership. So this one is, I'm going to say, and it's, it's, uh, it's because it's personal to me. So I will say um, Gene Hackman's character in Hoosiers. Hmm. Because of the way that he coaches his team, leads them, but really is focused on winning, but also equipping them to do the job that they need to do both on and off the court, making them better people. That's, that's a meaningful thing um, that he does as a leader. It's a meaningful thing um, for the way I think about leadership. And um, it's just like a family meaningful movie. So. 
Oh, that's a great one. I, I've forgotten about that. I mean, I haven't forgotten, but it, I haven't thought about it in a while. And I agree with you. I think he epitomized uh, people focused leadership because he lifted his team up in order to help them all win together. Yeah. I think he really loved them up. That's he right. Those players. And by loving them, he got the best out of them. And because he wanted the best for them. Yep. And collectively, they happened to win. Um, yep. Yeah. It's beautiful beautiful story about leadership so thank you becky thanks for being here and thanks for sharing your wisdom with our many listeners and spreading the word of the happiness recipe well thanks for having me yeah, so good to have you. if you like this podcast you'll love the cartavera tribe the Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.